Good evening. <clears throat> we are thankful that you're here, especially those who are visiting. We appreciate the decision that you've made to make our evening together with God a part of your evening. We're continuing our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes Sunday morning. We talked about the life of Solomon and where it seems that Ecclesiastes fit in his life. And we gathered from that that it appears that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon somewhere along towards the end of his life. It has a, a, a very much a flavor of a retrospect on his life and some mistakes that he made. Sunday afternoon, we talked about different views on the book of Ecclesiastes. The fact that some people believe that Ecclesiastes is an inspired record of Solomon's corrupted thinking as a pagan because his heart... His, his wives led his heart after these pagan gods, and so that book records how corrupt his heart had become, how corrupt his thinking had become. But we learned that that's not the case, that the things that Ecclesiastes teaches are consistent with things that we learn elsewhere in the Bible. We talked about the fact that much that Ecclesiastes has to say that's so, uh, so morbid and so sad in nature is said through the perspective of viewing life under the sun. And we talked about the repetition of that phrase, under the sun. It's in there 27 times. The phrase, on earth, that says essentially the same thing is in there, I think, another seven times. There's another phrase, under heaven, that's in there, I don't know, five or six times. All told, you've got well over 30 instances where Solomon qualifies his remarks by saying, under the sun. So there's a lot of... Futility. There's a lot of vanity. There's a lot of vexation of spirit or grasping for the wind. If all you see is what you've got under the sun. Because we're all going to meet life's end someday. And when we meet the end of our way, what is the value of all these things we've done under the sun? If all we have is under the sun. If you really think about it, that perspective is Solomon viewing life like an atheist. That all I've got is what I can get here and now, so I'm going to put the pedal to the metal, I'm going to cram the foot feet to the floorboard and have all the fun I can have in whatever way I can have it and see how it works. And he gets down towards the end of his way and he looks back and he says, it didn't work because I'm going to die. And then what is all that going to be for me? We talked about that last night in our study and how in his experiment it brought him to he got lower than a gopher's basement. I mean, he was dying. He said, I'm ready to die. I hate life. All that fun, all that money, all those songs, all that entertainment, the palace, everything. that Everybody wants that kind of stuff in the kind of measure that Solomon had it in. And he looked at it all and said, I hate this. He was depressed. It didn't work. But we learned last night in our study that every element in his experiment has a proper place in life. The joy, the entertainment, the construction projects, the wealth, all those things, they all have a proper place in our life, but because Solomon abused and misused them, they brought him to that low state where he hated life, but if we make proper usage of them, changing our focus, using them not for selfish purposes, but for the purpose of glorifying God, then that all of a sudden makes some of those other verses in Ecclesiastes make sense that say, hey... It's good to enjoy these things all the days of your life. Well, how could it be good if it's a vain thing that's a waste of time? If you use them with a different perspective. And I believe the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us this. And so we ended last night's study on that contrast between the potential vanity or the potential value that these different things can have in our lives. And tonight I want to zoom in on that a little bit and talk about some specific practical instructions that I hope will help us to understand how we can use all the things that Solomon abused in a more proper way with a different focus, with a different perspective that will have a better purpose and a better sense of fulfillment in our lives. But ultimately, that sense of fulfillment won't come from things under the sun. That sense of fulfillment comes from life in the sun of God and the hope that he provides for eternity. So that brings us into our study for tonight where we're going to talk about the potential vanity and the potential value these different things can hold in our lives. Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 12 is one of the passages in this great book that talks about Solomon's purpose and his experiment. He said, for who knoweth what is good for man in this life 
all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow. For he, who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? It's just another one of Solomon's depressing questions. So who can tell a guy how to spend his life that's basically a big waste and you're not going to live for very long anyway and then you're going to die? Who can tell what a man should do? Solomon, under direction of the Spirit, God can tell us what we should do. This and other passages in the book of Ecclesiastes admit that there's an element of life that's vain. Life under the sun, viewed only in that perspective, it's vain, it's futile. But we're here, so what do we do? I mean, what's your option? We know we're supposed to live our lives in a way that pleases God. We know we're living our lives in a sin-corrupted world that is therefore vain. And many things that we strive for have that element of futility to them. But I'm here. This is the only place I'm at, so this is all I've got to work with. You know, I think of that, I think of the Tinker Toy game my brother Mike and I played when we were real little. Our wives finally made us put them up, but when we were little, we liked playing with Tinker Toys. You, you, I think they still have Tinker Toys. They're brittle, made out of wood. They snap easy. They break real, real easy. So we had this thing that we wanted to be able to make a car out of Tinker Toys that was indestructible, a small car, because we couldn't make, we didn't have enough to make one big enough for us to get into, so we had to settle for a small car. And so our goal was to make a car out of those brittle Tinker Toys that you couldn't tear up by throwing against the wall and throwing against the furniture and dashing it across the room and doing all that stuff while mom wasn't watching. So we did that. And here's the idea of the game. Look, these things are brittle. They break easily. They come apart easily. But I want to make something strong out of them. Well, I'm, I need stronger material if I'm going to make something strong, don't I? I need steel. You know, I need something else. Stone. Give me something, anything to work with besides these brittle, thin pieces of wood. Well, here's the point of the game. That's all you've got to work with. So you're going to have to figure out how to make this weak stuff strong. You're going to have to figure out how to use it in a way that makes it strong. And so we did that. We would build it. We, there was a certain design. I can't remember how it went, but there was a certain design. We would build that. We'd take it and throw it against the furniture, throw it against the wall, kick it across the room, and it'd stay together. You can use something that's weak if you use it in the right way to make something strong. Well, the building blocks that God has given us to work with in life is this vain world in which we live. We're here. This is all we've got to work with. So we've got to figure out how to use these parts that are vain, that are compromised, and put them together in such a way in a God-focused life that builds something that's strong, that's something worth having, something worth keeping, something worth living for, something that'll lift me, lift me up out of the mire that says, therefore I hated life, like where Solomon wound up. Now, I'll tell you, all the blueprints in the Tinker Toy box are worthless. We tried. But there's a blueprint in the Word of God that'll work, and it'll work every time. And it'll show you how to take these weak, brittle toys that we call the things in life and put them together in a way, in a God-honoring way, that makes something that makes sense. And in that, there's hope that my life can have meaning. And my life can have value. And these vain things can take on a different look. Not because what I will accomplish during the time in which I walk here below, but because of the reward that awaits me when I cross over into that other world. When I pass that point of death. Some things are vain, some things have value. I've got to learn how to use these things in a way that gives them value. How do we sort between the two? Solomon talked about wisdom in the book of Proverbs and he said it's priceless. Get it with everything you've got. Solomon talked about wisdom in Ecclesiastes and it says the more you get, the matter you get. So what's the use? Everybody's going to die anyway. So how can I use wisdom in a way that made the Solomon of Proverbs realize it's got value and meaning instead of abusing it in a way that made that beleaguered man in Ecclesiastes say, what's the use? 
It's all in how we use these gifts. It's all in how we use these things. It's all in how we direct and focus our lives. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man in all his labor which he takes under the sun? What profit is there in these things that we do? If all you see is what's under the sun, there's really no profit. But if you see something beyond this world, then there's some value. Look at the idea of labor, pleasure, earthly wisdom, temporal life. We're letting these things represent the things that we discussed from Solomon's experiment last night. The labor that he sought out to do, the pleasures that he sought, the earthly wisdom that he used as he led the kingdom of Israel, the temporal life that he lived, that sort of a catch-all that represents all kinds of things. These things have this vanity, but how can we get, live in a way that gives them value? Remember the vanity of Solomon's labors in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 3. And verse 14, what profit hath a man in all his labor which he takes under the sun? Verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Some translations put that grasping for the wind, and that, you know, it, it could really go either way. The word, the Hebrew word that's translated spirit sometimes means wind. So either way, the idea works. If something is a futile effort, you're, it's just like trying to grasp for the wind. You're not going to catch it. But at the same time, Solomon's experiment wound up vexing his spirit and made him ready to die. So either way you understand that phrase, you're catching the idea. Ecclesiastes 2 and 11, I looked on the works that all my hands had wrought and the labor that I labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. All these labors, all these works. When Solomon was looking for physical fulfillment under the sun, it was letting him down. Verse 18 and 19 and verse 21. Then I hated all my labor in which I'd toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet will he will rule over all my labor in which I've toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity, for there's a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man that has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon says, so I put together this empire, so I put together all this wealth, so I've got all these resources, and I use them wisely, and I multiply my resources. Then I die, and one of my idiot kids just blows it all. It drove him nuts. I remember one time, <clears throat> an estate that I was telling some of the kids that's with me a story about this the other day, an estate that was assigned to a Christian woman to care for this. She was made the trustee of this estate to make sure that the resources within that estate were used properly and used to care for the certain needs that was intended to be cared for. The reason the guy set it up that way is because he didn't trust any of his family. But he knew this Christian person and he could trust them and so he left them as the trustee and set that all up. He'd worked hard in the construction business and other types of work. He'd invested his money wisely. He'd scrimped and saved. He lived close. You know, he did a lot of things, tried to put together a pretty decent sum that he wanted to take care of his mom and some other charitable needs and things like that. And he was really worried, sick, that, you know, if I leave this to my sisters, they're going to blow every bit up, poof it off. Drove him nuts to think about that. So he got him a good sharky lawyer to fix that all up where they couldn't get to it. And set it up in a way where it would be used properly. You know, that's the thing that represents the thing that Solomon is talking about here in life. We put all this stuff together, but once we're gone, we have a hard time controlling how it's used. That estate could have been abused and misused. Fortunately for his wishes, it didn't turn out that way because the person that he trusted wound up being trustworthy. But the story doesn't always end like that. And that's what Solomon is grappling with here. It shows something about the cycle of life. This is the vain part of the picture that was driving him crazy. You've got all this work and you do all these things with this expectation of fulfillment and fleshly satisfaction. But like we've learned from Ecclesiastes and in other books of scripture, our flesh is an insatiable monster that cannot be appeased. People out there in the world and atheists and agnostics, they, they, they cry baby because they think God makes all these unreasonable demands on people. They have no idea. There is no brutal taskmaster like the flesh. Because God can be pleased through the grace 
and the gift of his son. We can please our creator, but we can't please our flesh for any long-term fulfillment. It won't happen. It always comes back screaming for more, demanding more. Solomon lived it in his experiment, and he's telling us about it. You work with this expectation of fulfillment, but you only have limited fulfillment. Oh, there may be fun for a while, but one day you wake up and realize, I need more. I want more. Everything Solomon tried made him hungry for more. It's just like the more you eat, the more you stretch your stomach, the more it takes to fill your stomach. So you eat more, so you stretch your stomach more. And it's a vicious cycle that well represents the appetites of the, of the flesh. It only fulfills on a limited basis and certainly for a limited time. Because one day you get old, you get sick, and you wake up and realize someday I'm going to die and the party's going to end for me. And then what's all this fun going to do for me? Then comes death. And what you've put together in your works is beyond your control. And it's left to somebody else to pick the ball up and run for a while. (laughs) And they go through the cycle and they may drain the estate. Or they may add to the estate. They may swell the wealth. But whatever they do with it, someday they're going to die and leave it to somebody else. And that person is going to go through the same depressing cycle. And so it's stuck in that spiral of vanity. Same with pleasures. Ecclesiastes 2, the first two verses, he talked about all the pleasure that he sought. And he said, surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness of mirth. What does it accomplish? I can laugh myself silly, but someday I'm going to leave this world. And jokes are not going to help me on judgment day. Jokes are not going to dig my body out of that grave and bring it back to life. He realized that sense of entrapment there. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. That goes back to that thought that the flesh cannot be appeased. You think of that ancient time when a majority of a family's budget went towards their immediate food needs. And that's the kind of economic system that he's talking about when he says, everything we do is to feed us, and yet we're never quite full. Oh, we get full for a while, but it doesn't last, and we're hungry again. And so we work more, and we eat again, and then we're hungry again, and we're working more, and it just goes on and on until you die. No wonder he that kind of perspective. If all you see is what's under the sun, that's what you've got to come to. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9, betters the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of the spirit. He talks about that cycle that's prompted in the human heart. When we do all this labor... To appease the appetite, and yet the appetite isn't filled. So instead of just wanting what's in front of us, we want what we imagine beyond what we have. We imagine it, we dream of it, and if you're Solomon, you can afford to go get it. The rest of us are going to have a harder time than that. But what happens? What if you can go get what you want, and the, the wondering of the desire becomes the sight of the eyes? It's not fulfilling, and so... You begin to imagine something else. I want something else. I want something bigger. I want something better. I want something newer. I want more. And it's not working. You see, you seek pleasure in life. There's that expectation of fulfillment, but the flesh is never really fulfilled. And then there's this wandering desire where you get more, and it doesn't work, so you settle into this cycle of despair. And then you die and the next person picks up the mantle and goes through the same vein cycle. No wonder Solomon called it vanity. Earthly wisdom. Remember Solomon's wisdom didn't just focus on spiritual things and how to live a God-honoring life. There was a dimension of his wisdom that showed him how to govern Israel. And when he started out asking God for that, it was with good intentions. Lord, please make me wise. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Remember that's a part of our study from Solomon's life Sunday morning. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Your people are great. I want to know how to lead them. Please make me a wise person. So God did. And Solomon used that wisdom to govern Israel in a good, God-honoring way. But then he began to misuse that wisdom for himself. To make for himself better orchards, better vineyards, better houses, better watering systems for the orchards and so forth. Ecclesiastes 2, 15, as it happened to the fool, so it happened even to me. Why then was I more wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. He come back to the same brick wall called death. 
I sat here and I built up all this wisdom and I used it all for myself. And I woke up one day and realized someday that fool over there that doesn't have a clue about all this stuff that I'm so stinking smart about is going to die. And he'll either die before me or die after me, but he's going to die and so am I. And it all of a sudden began to look like a waste of time. Proverbs 3, verse 13 and 15, contrast. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies and all the things that thou canst desire are not able to be compared unto her. Now, how do I reconcile Solomon's statement here about how great wisdom is with what he said in Ecclesiastes about how vain it all was? I'm throwing that in there in this discussion of vanity to help us hold on to some sense of hope in the midst of this cesspool of despair in which Solomon was living in this unfocused, ungodly life that so badly needed redirection. In the midst of all that, there's something to live for, Solomon. There's something to hope for. And thankfully, apparently, finally woke up and saw that. If you believe the conclusion that he wrote at the end of the book, there's something to live for. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, how am I going to do that? I'm trapped in this vain world. You function within that framework. There is a way to use all this wisdom that Solomon had that doesn't bring you to that point of despair where you say, this is so vain. This earthly wisdom used in pursuit of vain things, used in a selfish way, used to uh, uh, create pleasures. He said these pleasures fail, the labors fail, and then you die and somebody else picks up everything you learn and runs with it, trying to get a different result and they get the same thing. The same thing with the temporal nature of life. Ecclesiastes 8 and 14 this is us to face something about life. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, and that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. You know what he's saying? Same thing my wife tells her fourth grade students. Life's not fair. Get a helmet. That's just how it is. Sometimes decent people suffer hardships, and sometimes horrible people have success. Get used to it. We've designed how many different governments among men to try to create better justice as we walk here below. We've contrived how many safety valves in our court system to try to ensure justice, to try to ensure that the guilty will be convicted and the innocent will be acquitted. And over and over we see there are times that our justice system built with the best of intentions lets us down. And it's not just in, in the way that we govern ourselves as human beings, but it's also seen in just the things that happen in life. Sometimes you suffer tragedies. Sometimes you suffer problems. Sometimes somebody gets cancer and somebody else that ought to die they just need dying because they're so evil, they just keep on living. And somebody else that we just need a little bit longer leaves all too soon. And it just feels like it's not fair. And it's that way because we're living in a sin-corrupted world. And if you want to thank somebody for it, don't blame God. Thank Satan. He's the one that orchestrated bringing sin, death, and suffering, all its misery, into this world. And Solomon puts it right in front of our face here and forces us to realize temporal life is not fair. Ecclesiastes 11 and 10, Therefore, remove sorrow from my heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. There's another thing about life, temporal life, we need to understand. Youth is vain. I know we celebrate it a lot in our culture, but I got news for you. If you're young, there's only going to be one thing that's going to keep you from getting old. And that's premature death. The young get old. And the old don't get young. Trust me, it's not for lack of trying. It just can't. So what are you going to do? Life isn't fair and then you die. I mean, that's the message, right? What happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing's befall them all. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals. All is vanity. 
The atheists create this world where people don't believe in God. They believe in the theory of evolution and we're just another animal. And then cry foul when our kids in school start living like that. We're just another animal. And viewing life in that perspective of under the sun, Solomon says, we've got no advantage over them. We're all the same and then we die. The dog dies, the cat dies, the horse dies. I'm going to die, you're going to die. No wonder the man was depressed. And when you look at life that way, it leaves you faced with the knowledge that you're nothing more or less than just an animal with no hope beyond the grave. How could you get anything but depressed? But when we understand a better perspective on life, this that seems so vain can have such great value. You seek fulfillment in this life, but injustice in life is a, is a certainty. One might revel in their youth, but the young become old and then the old die. And the next generation picks it up and takes another run at it and gets the same result. Amidst all this vanity, there is value with these same things. What can I do? What exactly can I do to turn this that seems so useless into something that can glorify God and bring fulfillment? Ecclesiastes 1.13 said, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Some translate that, that by which we can stay occupied. Or something along those lines. Look deep into Solomon's words here and get this point. Here we are under the sun, under heaven. We're living in this physical world and God has given us a burdensome task. We've got to take weak, brittle tinker toys and figure out how to make a strong car. And it can happen. It can be done. We take these things that we have in life and we are occupied with them. And, and God has given us these things to deal with. The wisdom, the pleasure, the labor, the projects, the entertainment... All these things God has given to humankind and said, here, take this and build a life worth living. Ecclesiastes 3 and 10, I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. And it's all these things that you say, what's the point? Solomon reminds us, there is a point. God does want you to function in this world even though it's a vain world. Even though, as Romans 8.20 says, we studied it Sunday evening, the creature has been made subject to vanity, even though we're subject to these vain things, God has placed those tools in our hands and left us a blueprint for how we can use them to build something strong. Instead of just labor, it becomes godly labor. If Ecclesiastes 5 and 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You remember when I talked about that idea of, uh, uh, in a sermon or two ago, about that illustration of my friend that had that job and he was working hard and the buddies at work was telling him, you're going to get laid off, why are you working so hard? And he said, I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. When you work hard in your godly labors and you're honest and you give whoever you're working for, the, the best day's work you can give them, that honors God. We do what we do in our work as unto the Lord, not unto men, the Bible teaches us. When we go and we work hard in our godly labors and we work in an honest way and we guide our labors with wisdom and discretion, that pays tribute to Christians and what it's like to be a servant of Christ. Look, how are you going to illustrate to somebody else out there the value of being an honest, hardworking person? You're living in a vain world. That's the only arena in which you have to function. So you're going to have to demonstrate a spiritual value with a spiritual lesson trapped in a physical world. So you've got to put that labor together, not thinking, this is going to satisfy me. I'm going to do this for myself, like Solomon spent a lot of time doing. But you're going to conduct those labors in a way... So that you're trying to honor God and seek the advancement of His cause and His kingdom. 
And do it with a thought in mind that I want to illustrate and demonstrate the godly values of honest work and things like that. The biblical work ethic. Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, whatsoever thy hand find to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Whatever there is for you to do, do it with everything you've got. Do a good job. If you're a ditch digger, you be the best ditch digger you could be. If you're that plumber we've talked about in some of our illustrations in, in the morning studies, then you be the best plumber you can be. And if a lawyer is what you've got the skills and the abilities to do, then you do that as best you can do. But you do it in a way that honors God. You do that because it's the right thing to do. And others see you doing that. They see a picture of the work of Christ. The difference, our labors in that vain sense, they're done for the sake of greed. They're done for the sake of self-glory. They're done for the sake of earthly fulfillment. And all that renders is your greed leaves you unsatisfied. Your self-glory, whatever glory you get from your labors is soon forgotten when you're gone. And that earthly fulfillment is un. Well, it leaves you unsatisfied, doesn't it? That's the vain perspective. Now let's talk about that same thing, those same labors. But let's do them a little different. Let's put a godly focus on it. Instead of doing it for the sake of greed, let's do it for the sake of setting a godly example of how a person ought to humble themselves and work hard and be honest and so forth like that. Let's do it for the sake of God's glory. Let's do it for the sense of being a servant of God who will someday receive a sense of ultimate fulfillment in eternity. The same labor now conducted through a different prism and look what you get. The example you set shows godly values to others. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus said. Why do you want us to do that, Lord? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Your good example then glorifies God. And what can it do? All that hard work you do trying to be a decent citizen, a decent employee, a decent human being. Now all of a sudden it's brimming with meaning. Now all of a sudden that idea of vanity and vexation of spirit is long in your rear view mirror. Now you've got something to live for. I can show godliness to the world around me and perhaps it would lead someone to Christ. For that sense of eternal reward and eternal fulfillment. The same action takes on a totally different meaning, doesn't it? Let's talk about the value of joys and entertainment in life. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should make his soul enjoy the good in his labor. So also I saw that this was from the hand of God. That same fun that Solomon found unfulfilling and vain, that same mirth he also said is from the hand of God. That's the brittle tinker toys he's handed you and said, build a car out of it that will stand the test. Use these things to make something useful. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 13 and verse 22. Also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labors. It's the gift of God. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Over and over in Ecclesiastes, we find that these things that can be vain, they can be our undoing, they can ruin us. If we enjoy these things with a God-centered focus, all of a sudden, it's a gift from God. And God welcomes you to enjoy it. Don't feel guilty if you got something nice in life. Don't feel guilty if you're able to enjoy some manner of success, whether small or large. If you exercise that through the lens of a God-centered life, that's a blessing from God. It's something that's from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 8 and 15 says, I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in all his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Under the sun, in that vain world, we can take these things and enjoy them through the proper focus. Uh, focus and they can be all right. It can be pleasing to God. Here's what I believe is a key passage in Ecclesiastes to understand the purpose these temporal things have. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him for it is his heritage 
As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labors, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You remember that a little bit, uh, a few s- s- slides ago where we talked about God's keeping us occupied with these things? Here's a point I see in verse 20, and I want to ask you to really think about this. If all you think about all day, every day is, well, someday I'm going to die, so what's the point? Why well, go mow the yard? So what if the grass is tall and the place looks ugly? Someday I'm going to die, and then it's not going to matter. Why should I paint the house? Why should I take care of my car? Why should I change the oil? Why should I shave? Why, why, why? Why should I not shave? What difference does it make? I'm going to die. Look, it may be true that you're going to die, but God has given us things to keep us busy and keep us occupied so we don't get low and get lost like Solomon. But he wants us to be occupied with these things in a way that brings honor to him for his sake, not our own. The whole point of Solomon's experiment that's especially elaborated on in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes was selfish fulfillment. And that's what was wrong with all those things. But when you take those same things and you use them not for the sake of self, but for the sake of God, now all of a sudden you've got something that you can enjoy as a gift from God. Because what option do you have? Not enjoy it? How's that going to help? You're still going to die. So why not enjoy it as a gift from God and recognize with these things he's keeping us busy with the joys of our heart, using these things in a way that honors him, that sets a good example, that points to eternity. It can be done. The difference, those joys exercised for earthly fulfillment, selfish pleasure, and that being your sole purpose in life, Well, the earthly fulfillment leaves you unfulfilled. The selfish pleasures quickly become sinful. And that sole purpose leaves an empty life. I always think about Howard Hughes when I think about that idea of an empty life. And I suspect that some of the younger folks don't know who Howard Hughes is. And it just proves part of Solomon's point that, you know, people who amass great things are soon forgotten. And I'll tell you, Howard Hughes is one of the wealthiest men that ever lived in America. And he died within the span of my lifetime, and yet now he's largely forgotten, although I know some of the folks that are my age or a little older might remember Howard Hughes. There was that time that he was the guy who, in people's eyes, was living the good life. He had the great wealth. He built the Spruce Goose. That maybe wasn't his most shining moment, those of you who are aware of that aeronautical experiment. But the man made a lot of money, had a lot of women, had a lot of fancy houses and fine cars and big, golden, shiny things. But if you remember the news stories about the closing years of his life, he died a miserable man. He wouldn't let anybody but his immediate servants come into his presence because he was scared to death. He's going to get a germ and it's going to make him sick and kill him. And he lived miserable and alone. He reached that point that Solomon reached in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where he just hated his existence. And all that money in the world wouldn't keep him out of the grave. And it won't help him on the day of wrath. The man lived a life that through earthly eyes looked fulfilling, but at the end of the way, it was exposed as an empty life. How soon Howard's lesson is forgotten. And other people are picking it up and trying again. Look, there's a better way. That same action, that joy, can be handled in a different way. You can use it as a gift from God. And appreciate it as such. You can use it in a way that shows an example of moderation. You can use it in a way to pass the time with godly pursuits. And what will that yield for you? A different result. You'll glorify God in your moderation. You'll show godly values and not letting your life spiral out of control like Solomon did for a time. And you pass the time until you reach the end of your way and God rewards you Rewards you. For how you've made proper use of these earthly blessings. It's the same activity done with a different focus. And within the same book that says it's all vanity and vexation of spirit, all of a sudden now we're finding there's value and there's meaning and there's hope. Wisdom that's used to govern in a godly way. Solomon had that and he wanted it to govern Israel. Look how it can help. 
Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy prince is eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is a son of nobles and the prince is eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. What's Solomon saying? Woe to a country whose government fritters away their wealth on wasteful things and they just abuse their power for their own selfish purposes. But the land is blessed if their king is a righteous individual, a wise individual who governs carefully the way Solomon started out trying to govern. Proverbs 20 and 26 says, A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. Wisdom used to govern, even earthly wisdom used to govern in a way that's godly for the glory of God can accomplish good things that aren't vain. Proverbs 22 and verse 9, when the righteous are in authority, people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Why? Because wisdom used to govern in a godly way all of a sudden has a purpose. We could use wisdom the same way to direct our labors to be more godly and more successful and have the same kind of result. Look at the difference. Earthly wisdom that's used for vain labors, for vain and selfish pleasures, for earthly fulfillment, leaves us, in t- uh, 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 leaves us empty. The vain labors are futile, the vain pleasures, they're futile, and you leave life empty and unfulfilled. Because it was all used for selfish purposes. But you take those same things, those same elements... That same kind of wisdom, and you use it with a different focus. You use it to exercise godly governance, governing the people or governing your affairs in a way that honors God. You use it to promote godliness like that king we read about in Proverbs who runs the threshing wheel over the wicked, symbolically speaking of the wicked being punished, using wisdom to discern that. You use it to oppose evil, and look what happens. Your life all of a sudden glorifies God. That's not a waste of time. That doesn't leave you feeling lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. That leaves you feeling like you've done something worth doing. And you promote godliness. You show a good example of godly values and others see that light shining in your life, in the way you handle your affairs. And in opposing evil, you discourage sin and show people there is a better way to live. We can use these tinker toys and build something that's not quite so flimsy. The value in this temporal life is found when it's a refocused, redirected life. Ecclesiastes 4 and 8 said, There's one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eyes satisfied with riches. But he never asked, For whom do I toll and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and grave misfortune. Think about it for a second. Solomon imagines a man whose life is empty. He has no companions. He has no family. He has no friends. There's no brothers or sisters in the Lord. There's nobody. And he's working away. And working away and doing without and trying to gain more and trying to manage his affairs. And Solomon says, it never occurs to the poor fellow. I don't have anybody to do this for. It's all for self. And because of that, it's misdirected. It's out of focus and it will fail. What does this show us? It shows us that life without meaningful companions becomes meaningless. But life with meaningful companions becomes meaningful. Look at the next verses. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This context teaches us the value of godly associations in our lives. Family, friends, brothers and sisters. People that we associate with. And what happens when we have those associations? All our labors, all the things that we're doing... We're using all of those in this vain world to create an opportunity to help my brother and my sister up when they fall. To help mend them when they're broken, when they're hurting. To help them out when they're down. Now all of a sudden I've got something to live for. This morning when we studied Ruth, toward the end of our study, I talked about the fact that all of our relationships with other people are, is seated in our relationship with God. If that relationship with God is good or if it's bad, either way, that affects all of our relationships with other people. I believe the Bible teaches that in a lot of different ways. Now you think about that as you think about what Solomon is teaching about this redirected, refocused life. 
You live life not without meaning, but with a sense of purpose regarding the relationships that you are blessed to have in your life. And you don't live for yourself. You live to help others. And they live to help you. So in your effort to live for God, when you feel weak and when you fail, somebody's there to help you. And when they feel weak and they fail, you're there to help them. And your relationship with them is bound to your relationship with God. And this accountability system, this support system is there in place constantly to help you along the way. Who can do it alone? We need each other, don't we? And our lives can take on a whole new sense of hope and a whole new sense of meaning when we understand that our relationships with others are opportunities to enhance one another's relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 9 and 9 says, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in the labor which thou takest under the sun. It sounds like a rocking back and forth contradiction. Have this joyful life that, oh, by the way, it's very vain. <laughs> you try to add all that up. We've touched on this earlier to try to just show a little bit of hope when we were in the really despairing part of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to go back and revisit this. In the book of Ephesians 5, verse 25, he tells you why that means something in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. When a man lives joyfully with his wife, with a self-sacrificing love, he's showing to everybody around them the picture of what Christ has done for us. It may be a faint picture. We, we, you know, we can't do it great like Christ did, but we can do our best. And what did Paul say toward the end of this context here in Ephesians 5? He said, I speak a great mystery. I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. We talk about family and husbands loving their wives and wives respecting and honoring their husbands. It's about showing people around us how great it can be to have a relationship with the Lord because our relationship with other people are seated in our relationship with God. Now I've got something to live for. Now I've got something to work for. Even if it's backbreaking labor, even if it's a mind-numbing task, I've got motivation to want to keep that up. Because I'm keeping that up to function better in this life in a way that I can help others around me fulfill my duty towards friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this refocused, redirected life all of a sudden is filled with joy. Because there's an eternal purpose in what I'm doing. Not a selfish purpose. The difference then illustrated on our diagram, that temporal life where you're trying to seek justice and make everything fail, and you're trying to seek longevity and live a little longer and look a little younger, well, there's still going to be injustice in life, and you're still going to die. So go ahead and use all the cosmetic tricks to trick us and make us think you're younger than you are. <laughs> you're still on a grease slide towards the grave. But you take and you redirect and refocus that same life and you live it seeking godly relationships and honoring God in the way you fulfill those relationship uh, responsibilities, you strengthen those relationships in trying to lead them to Christ, or if they with you are walking with Christ, you help one another, and now all of a sudden our life has meaning. We're helping each other and we're showing a picture of God's love. It's not just the husband and wife that show that. We show the love of God when we as Christians love one another. What did Jesus teach us about that? He said, by this shall all people know that you're my disciple. When you love your friends, your brothers in, in your physical family, your sisters in your physical family, or others in your physical relationships in life, or with one another in the church, by having the right kind of relationships with each other, that temporal life takes on meaning because we're constantly showing a picture of God's love. And that gives us something to live for. That gives your lives a new sense of meaning and a new sense of hope. It all boils down to this motive. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We're living in a world where you've got to get riches to live with a sense that, you know, that's not going to save me from sin. But I can live a righteous life and through the blood of Christ be saved. We live these things with a sense of moderation. In Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 8, True the light is sweet and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. He warns us there are problems on the horizon. 
So you live your life enjoying things that are there for us to enjoy with a sense of moderation. You know, I've got good times right now, but there's going to be bad times too. And I've got to learn to be the same consistent man of God when times are rough that I am when times are good. And then those things take on more meaning and have more hope. My use of things changes. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then it must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. I guess at least a few of us have split wood. I've split wood as a young man. And if you've done much of that, you understand and appreciate the value of having sharp tools to work with. But you don't have to swing an axe to know what he's talking about. It's common sense. If you use wisdom to direct your affairs, you'll have greater success. So you use wisdom to direct your affairs and you show a godly picture of the proper use of wisdom as it's exercised in this life. Because it's not just about splitting wood to the log plops open. It's about the same wisdom that you use to govern your financial life in a way that allows you to honor God with your substance and the first fruits of your increase like the Bible says. You use that same wisdom to lead your family or to fulfill your role in the family. And it makes your family a harmonious picture of love, you see. And that brings success and the example that you set. It's about the focus that we have. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 6 and 7. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the picture be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. I put those two verses in there to give you a sense for what you read in Ecclesiastes 12. He starts out telling you, you remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then he begins this very poetic description of your journey towards death. And that particular journey ends in verse 7 with, you know, you've fallen apart like the bowls and the cords and all that stuff that he's talking about, that you just fall apart and then you die. You live your life with a sense of focus, embracing the fact that someday my life on earth is going to end. And I'm making plans for that moment. Matt talked to you the other day about how you need a philosophy by which to live your life. You need something to give you a sense of guidance, to give your ship a rudder so you're not just tossed here and there, tossed to and fro. And that's what this is about. That's what our study of Ecclesiastes is about, is giving you a sense of focus. You live your life embracing the reality. You're not going to be here under the sun forever. You have an eternity to prepare for. And I just wonder if you're prepared tonight. I wonder if your life shows the spiritual direction and the spiritual pursuits that we've studied tonight as we've talked about the vanity and the value. I will tell you that if you're not living that kind of life, the Word of Christ will show you how. If you in humility will submit to His will, will you submit? If you've never become a Christian, will you obey the gospel and begin a meaningful walk with Christ and let that relationship with your Creator spread out to all your other relationships and give your life a whole new sense of hope and meaning? Will you do that? If you have become a Christian but you're living a carnal life seeking carnal fulfillment, will you stop and realize how you're wasting your time? And find out there's something out there bigger than self to live for. His name is Jesus. Refocus and redirect your life to again give that fresh new sense of hope and promise that only comes in following our Savior. If we can assist you in becoming a Christian, or if as a Christian you need our help and our prayers to assist you in your walk here under the sun, we want to do so. Please come. Have a seat on the front pew while we stand and sing.